0: Today's guest is an award-winning outdoor writer, hunter, wildlife photographer, and videographer, an outfitter and wilderness guide, and you may know him from the Outdoor Channel on television. This guy is phenomenal, and he's doing some really awesome work to preserve history and culture while also helping to manage the species. We have some great uh, conversations in this interview with Jim Shockey. Are you ready to live life to the full? Are you ready to rise up and live a life of honor? Are you ready to boldly step into a life of courage? This is the Manlyhood Mancast, and here's your host, Josh Atcher. Gentlemen, welcome to the Manlyhood Mancast. I'm your host, Josh Hatcher. I am so glad that you have tuned in today. Listen, I want to do a quick promo for you. Our friends over at Hemp Mafia have made this Manlyhood's Apothecary Dirty Beard Oil. It's made with CBD and it's got peppermint and cinnamon and uh, lavender and lemon in it. And honestly, the those oils have some antibacterial properties. The CBD has medicinal properties as well. So this has a lot of benefits, but the biggest benefit is it's going to make your beard smell good and feel good. It's going to smooth out the, the frizz. It's going to make it shiny, healthy, luxurious because everybody needs a luxurious beard. So this is on a limited run, which means that we've just got a handful of bottles. If it sells well, if you guys like this, We'll carry it. We'll make it a regular thing. So if you like this and you want this beard oil, go to manlyhood.com slash store. We've got some other goodies in there for you as well. Just wanted you to know guys, we've also got a place where you can level up as a man. You can get challenged. You can set goals and dreams because we've all got dreams and that dream means nothing. If you don't give it a deadline, if you don't break it down to actionable steps, and if you don't have accountability to help you work towards that goal, that's what the arrows and iron brotherhood is all about. It's also about learning the things that we need to learn to be a better husband, to be a better father. We've got courses, we've got eBooks. All of that is available at a variety of different price points, depending on what it is that you're looking for and what you can afford. So that's going to be available for you soon. We're working on all the details. We'll be launching it soon. So if you want to be a part of it, go to manlyhood.com slash brotherhood. Give us your email address, and we'll get you plugged in. All of that being said, guys, let's get right into our interview with Jim Shockey. Jim, it is great to have you on the Manlyhood Mancast today. I've been following your work as, uh, as an outdoorsman for quite a while, and you're doing some pretty awesome things, man. It's, it's an honor to have you on the show today.
1: Oh, it's my, my pleasure. And, uh, thanks for the, the compliments.
0: So Jim, why don't you tell me a little bit about maybe some of our listeners? I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with you and your work, uh, with the hunting shows that you do, but I maybe you could kind of tell me a little bit more about your life, the, what, what it is that you do and, and what you're making, man.
1: <laughs> that's, that's kind of asking me what my job is, which, which is uh, multifaceted, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I guess most people probably know me from the outdoor world, uh, <clears throat> the outdoor hunting adventures. Our television shows, uh, the professionals, or Uncharted, because I you know I hosted and produced those shows uh, over the last twenty well twenty five years. So we we also have television shows that we produce on the Aboriginal Network up here in Canada, ATPN. Uh, our shows are syndicated around the world. So so most people know me from that. I, you know, I, but there's a segment that will know me from my antique days. I mean, Country Living did three articles on us over the years. Um, Rachel Newman, the editor of, of Country Living magazine, said that she'd never seen such an uh, enormous and fine collection of ethnocentric uh, furniture. Um so that that's another side. You know, we we furnished all of the Warren country stores back in the day. So so that's the other side of what I do. Um, then then I also uh, you know author. I, I've uh, got a novel. Little Simon and Schuster uh, gave me a two two book deal a big big giant advance, and that'll be out within the year. It's written. We're just in the editing process with Emily Bessler in new york city who's like the rock star of editing so anyway there's kind of the cole's notes version but what i'm really most proud about is our family you know to me that's the most important of all two wonderful children and four wonderful grandchildren right now 38 years of marriage to my soulmate
0: grandchildren are the best aren't they
1: yeah there's no question i mean that (laughs) as a as a parent Uh, you know, I mean, it's pretty busy, but, uh, once, once your own children have their children, it's not quite so busy and, uh, two hours you can hand them back to them and and you get all the joy and pleasure without (laughs) having to do the, 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 the training. So yeah, grandchildren are wonderful.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. So Jim, tell me about your work with, um, with the outdoors, with hunting. I mean, you're, you've kind of, uh, created, uh, a legacy with what it is that you're doing. So wh- how uh, how did you get started with, with hunting and, and, and the outdoors?
1: Uh, you know, I, I'm a, a firm believer that you, you, you get one life. So, you know, make the best of that one life. And I, I just never wanted to be handcuffed to, you know, golden handcuffs to some type of a, a career that I didn't want to do. So, so I, I you know, I, again, you know, how, how, how did uh, G. P. Consella say, "You build it, they will come," and and so if you if you believe in, in what you're doing and and you're you know you put effort into it, you get paid for it, and and that that uh, that's how I essentially start doing what I what I do now. I love antiques, love art, love ethnographic and tribal art, love traveling, mm-hmm. love learning about new cultures, experiencing, you know, all the wonders that those cultures have to provide. And, and also, uh, you know, these amazing places around this earth. I love to visit all that. So so when you tie it all together, and, and you know, I, I am a firm adherent to the field-to-table lifestyle. You know, we, we have our own little vineyard, our own orchard. We make our own wine, make our own Spiders and we have a garden, you know, grow our own vegetables. I like catch our own fish, do your know, prawns or crabs. Mostly I'm a crappie fisherman, but, uh, you know, and, and provide our own meat. So the hunting part of that lifestyle, uh, you know, and, and also I, I am firmly of the opinion that, that all of us who can should be doing what you know, we're able to to uh, help. The conservation of the wild wildlife species around the world. So when you tie all that together, you end up with with this as a career. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it was a pretty orchestrated happening. It wasn't like a, it was just right place, right time. I guess you know, right skill set certainly helped, but, but also, you know, hard work. I think. Uh, but <laughs> how they say? It? It's not a job. It's uh, I've loved every love getting up in the morning. Love going to bed at night, dead tired and can't wait for the next morning. So, so that's, that's how I ended up doing what I, what I'm doing. Not, not a, you know, just a, a vision from when I was very young, but I wanted to live my life as I wanted to live my life.
0: Yeah. I know a lot of men who, if they had their way, they would go into a, <laughs> into a career like that. And I think that it's, it's difficult for people to see that it might be possible to, to, make find a way to, to monetize that passion you know do, was that uh did you have a lot of hard work or was it luck or how did that all come together for you
1: well i mean it, i mean first of all you take the table take it off the table that i had money to start with that uh, you know I, I grew up in a trailer park uh the conversation around the dinner table was always whether dad would get laid off whether we'd have enough money when we did finally buy a house that uh We could keep it, Uh, you know. I left it home at 17 to go to university, so you know, and I left with three hundred dollars, and there certainly was no money on my parents' side. So, so that's the first thing, you know. It's it's there's a necessity um, when you're not born with with um, a fallback option. Um, So, you know, it's not a fear of failure, but it's it's a, a very strong Avoidance of failure, which means, you know, if, if there's 24 hours in a, in a day, then you work, you know, 23, 24, if you can, um, and you you do it day after day after day after day. It, it's truly hard work. Now, now, yes, there's a certain skill set that you know, I maybe I was born with. I don't know uh, the way I look. I have no idea. I don't spend a lot of time, you know, at that. I mean. Yeah, you know, there's lots of people. I was going to mention names that that you know don't have that sort of outdoorsy look, but but are very successful uh, in the outdoors. So so it's it. I, I honestly believe it's hard work. You know, luck. I, you know, yeah, luck. I'm not dead, and I have lots of friends that are dead. So so I was lucky in that regard. Um, but you know, luck in making choices and and believing in myself. You know, I, I, I don't. I I think the believing in yourself comes as a far or with, you know, far greater power on, on what you end up doing in your life than just luck. I'm not a, not a firm believer in luck. Time will always mitigate opportunities provided by luck, you know, or if you don't have them, it'll, it'll provide for them eventually. So, so luck is just 50, 50. It's, it's, that's not a, I don't believe that that's uh, a big factor in anyone's success, but if they've reached the top of their game in any endeavor.
0: Yeah. So I know that you've hunted all kinds of animals, all kinds of places. What, uh, what are some of your favorite places and things that you've hunted?
1: Uh, I mean, we, we've lived on moose meat ever since I was, I mean, if my dad didn't get a moose in the fall, we we did you know we didn't go buy a cow. I didn't even know you could buy a cow until it was in high school. Uh, you know it, it was it was moose meat or, or macaroni literally for us. Uh, so moose is my you know favorite animal to hunt uh, anywhere around the world. I mean I hunted moose in many crazy places. You know Kamchatka Peninsula and Siberia, Sweden. North America side to side, um, you know, obviously in the, in the northern part of, of North America, although I have hunted moose also in Utah. So, so moose are, you know, as a, as a species, just because they're such a fabulous uh, game animal for table fare. Um, you know, you get a lot of meat and, and uh, they live in beautiful places. You generally don't find them in the back 40, but unless you live in you know, somewhere where, where, where moose are, are, are also living, which means your fences probably got knocked down last night. <laughs> but, uh, you know, moose for sure. And the second part of your question, you know, the the place, my, my wife, asked, uh, Louise, asked me, uh, a lot of people know her as Nan Louise. Um, she, you know, if there's a spa within three miles, she's pretty happy. So she's not, I wouldn't call her the, you know, a real tough and rough and ready outdoors woman, but, you uh, You know, she asked me one time if there's a place that I'd been to in my career that I would like her to see. You know, what place would that be? A rougher place, not, you know, because she'd always go with me if we were headed to Spain or Germany or, you know, some some nice countries. She'd been in Tanzania and and Mexico, obviously, and Australia. But, uh, you know, I I told her Ethiopia, the, the Omo Valley in Ethiopia, back, I'd say, now 30 years ago, Nat Geo said was the last frontier in Africa, and it truly was. The Omo Valley, culturally, um, just the wildlife, the, the remoteness, the lack of influence by the outside world. Um, and it's, you know, Ethiopia as a country is spectacular, the number of of different languages, uh, cultures. And, and, you know, to be with the, the Hammer and the Kara people in the Omo Valley back then was it was, it was, truly amazing other than the AK 47s which are ubiquitous, uh, you know, cause it's between Sudan and Somalia. Um, it was, it was truly, truly an amazing place. I think now it's been dammed over and Nomo, Omo, Omo river has been damned. And I think it's a, a village or town or city of 20,000 people, mostly, uh, you know, from China, they, they've, uh, you know, like I say, they're looking for power and resources. So, so I think it's not the same now. But that's why that's still to this day my favorite place. And I would say the same thing to anybody if they can get to Ethiopia, Omo Valley. Maybe not so much anymore, but in that region, it's it's spectacular.
0: Hmm. It sounds like a beautiful place. I've been in West Africa, um, and it was beautiful. But I've never been on the other other side of the continent. So that would be a pretty cool thing to see.
1: Yeah, West Africa is not common uh, for people to go to. Uh, it, it, it's, again, a wondrous place, but not a place I'd take my wife. You know, there's good countries, Ghana, you know, but you, you get Liberia and Burkina Faso nowadays. It, it's pretty, you know, it can be pretty rough, but uh, it is. You know, the West Africa is awesome.
0: What, um, so if moose is your favorite animal to hunt, have you ever had, uh, or how much, Prep goes into a hunt when you go. Uh, Do you have to do a lot of planning? Do you use game cameras to kind of track? What what do you do when you're preparing that?
1: Well, just to give you an idea of where I hunt moose, uh, our our outfitting territory, the Rogue River Outfitters, which is another one of my um, facets facets of my career. You know, I'm an outfitter. I I, um, have guides, and we take people into the wilderness areas of north america and my outputting territory in the yukon the rogue river opening territory is twelve thousand square miles so over 7 million acres um there's not a single road in that entire area um all access is by airplane you can get some way into the territory by boat but not very far by jet boat so so it's not the same as you know setting up trail cameras and and uh Scouting and and things like that for preparation. It, it's far far more logistically demanding than than just hunting on the back forty. Uh, as I said earlier, the uh, so so you know we we have airplanes. My my airplane's up there right now. We're hitting all our camps to see how many have been destroyed by grizzly bears. Uh, we probably got thirty camps up there, cabins and and uh, on different lakes and along the rivers, and and uh, you know we have to. Every year, I go through this process of what what have the grizzly bears destroyed. So there, there's part of it. So I've got people up there right now. The season doesn't open until August 1st, but they've already been up there for a month. You know, last year we crashed my airplane. Um, you know, it, it's these are these are the kind of things we deal with. Not not a failed SIM card for a, uh, right. on a trail camp. You know, people people die doing what we do, and and uh, so the the, the the preparation ahead of time is is. You you control every factor that you can control, and then you react. Uh, you know, in, in by according to the five rules, which every one of my guides can recite instantly: is safety, 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 and safety. And and even with all that, there's still objective dangers. Like I say, we lost an airplane last year. We're lucky; we didn't lose a pilot. I've had three of our main pilots have died in the last twenty years. Um, airplane crashes, you know, in, in the mountains, and it's. You know, so that's what we deal with is is just a little bit different level of of preparation on top of you know the the physical preparation for my own personal hunts. I mean I'm as I'm talking to you right now I'm, I'm walking back and forth, you know, I'm trying to get my average twelve thousand five hundred steps in every single day of the year. So you know I'm gonna keep walking even though I've got an injured knee right now. I've got a you know golfing like walking, carrying my clubs or you know push them on a little, uh, three-wheeler but uh you know that just active you have you have you know if you want to increase the odds in your favor of coming out safely then you, you go in in as good a physical shape as you possibly can now our clients that we take and you know we'll, we'll take 50 moose hunters this year for sure um in, or in that range anyway that the uh, we look after the details so they don't have to be uh, Superman to, to come on our hunts. We will make sure we take care of it, but the guides have to be. So, yeah. so that's all part of the preparation.
0: So when you get out in the, in the thick of it, uh, I imagine there's a lot of, like you said, that training with safety just to make sure that you've got a plan for most circumstances that can come your way. Have you personally, I mean, the plane crash seems like a very dangerous experience. Do you find yourself in a lot of danger while you're hunting?
1: I, you don't look at it like that um, be, because it's what you choose to do. I mean, I'm looking at a boat going across the ocean right now, and, and they're in a lot of danger. If he goes 200 yards to his left, he's going to crash on the rocks or. 200 yards this way, you know, driving a, a car, you get into it every time. You're, you're coming at other vehicles 60 miles an hour, and you don't know what the other driver's doing or, or how good he is at, at what he's doing. So you're in, you're in danger every single time you're you're doing anything that you, you do. So wh- this is what we do, so I don't look at it as a danger. I, you know, that said, at the end of the season, you know, I, I have to say I, I do a little quiet prayer of thanks when we, we get out of it with nobody, you know, no major injuries, nobody hurt. Um, so, you know, I don't know that most people have that kind of a thought after they make it through a day of work, but, uh, but we do, you know, it, it's yeah. uh, a nightmare to, to lose somebody on your watch.
0: Yeah. When, when you are out and you're looking for moose, you talked about the grizzly bears destroying camps um have you encountered many predators while you're while you're hunting and do you hunt predators as well
1: <laughs> uh you know the, the uh the, the question should be do the predators hunt us as well mm. <laughs> you know, we, we had a grizzly bear last year that was literally in the front steps uh the guys had to shoot it uh in one of my camps two years ago the or no it would be now it'd be four years ago the um trapper was he had a cabin just down at the other end of the lake when i say lake i mean it's an hour and a half airplane ride to get to this lake and we have a camp several cabins just you know it's one of our main camps and it's you. what was it six seven years ago we had to shoot a grizzly bear that was trying to break into through the door of a cabin to get at one of the guys that was sleeping in that cabin you know these are little tiny cabins just big enough for for a bed basically uh One of the other guides heard the screaming and had to go shoot the bear, trying to get our guide. And a few years later, the um, copper was at his end of the lake with his wife and, and uh, one-year-old daughter, and grizzly bear killed her and, and the daughter. Um, so you know, you're <laughs> you know, have I ever encountered grizzly bears? Yeah, of course they're 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 everywhere out there. You know, I've said before, it's almost a grizzly bear plague. When you manage a species for more of that species for sixty years, you end up with more of that species, and eventually, someone has to make the hard choice of managing that species. Just like you have to manage every wildlife species in the in the planet these days, you know there there truly is not in this entire world, go to the largest species, you know down i mean, I'm not down to bacteria and even mice, but uh, you know the bigger than the bread box size animals, they're they're managed everywhere in this world. There is no unmanaged wildlife species anymore, and and that is the same for predators. You know you, like I say, you manage it for more of them over the years. you eventually end up with more of them. and then you have to make that choice. Uh, what do you do with them? You know you're now starting to affect because of human involvement and human meddling, you're, you're affecting the balance of nature out there. And people can say, well, nature will take care of it all. And yeah, it will, except, you know, nature on its own didn't provide roads, logging roads for wolves to run, uh, you know, turning them into uber predators. And, you know, I guess the other way to look at that philosophically is, are we a part of nature or are we above nature? And, and again, this is not, we don't have time to get into that question, but, um, uh, you know, the bottom line is for the conservation of all wildlife species and with humans you know we're here we're not going away there's almost eight billion of us now so you know people have to get over it we're here and and what we've caused we've caused and where we are we are and, and now we have to somehow figure out a way to make sure that we have you know the wildlife species looked after as well we've you know, taken great care of the seven billion cows in the world, and the twenty-five billion chickens in the world, and you know six million goats and six million sheep. You can look up those numbers if you want. You know, we've we've replaced wildlife with those type of domesticated animals. So whatever is left out there that's wild, and you know, we have a responsibility to look after. And that doesn't mean creating an ecosystem with you know ten thousand grizzly bears and and uh, no moose. Uh, you know, and it, it's just it's a reality. So that gets back to your your question about predator hunting. You know, the predators are hunting us up there, and uh, eventually someone's going to have to make a decision to, to uh, manage the predators just like they manage the ungulates.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I think about that a lot. You know, where I live in Pennsylvania, it's... Uh, the middle of in the middle of the Allegheny National Forest and we don't have many predators here anymore you know we have some coyotes we have some you know small game predators fishers and things like that but um, you know I I think about the fact that really man is the apex predator (laughs) and that may be the case but there are still things that eat us so
1: (laughs) yeah yeah i mean you know the first get away from there and into the wildlands you go a few thousand miles west and north and and uh, yeah it's it's very much still a, a kill or be killed uh, country up there um even though many people have you believe that you can you know if you're nice to them they'll be nice to you and you know you might as well just dress yourself up like a bonbon if that's what you're planning in in the really remote area it's uh it's uh it's a rough world you know the the real world that that, uh runs like it used to with very little human influences uh it's a rough place
0: yeah Jim what's been your most challenging hunt
1: uh you know I mean it's a multifaceted question but but you know I, I was on a sheep hunt a doll sheep hunt in the Yukon way back in the day um and it was the first hunt. Uh, there's many places around this world where you have to go with guides. You don't. You can't just do a solo hunt. It's not legal if you're not a resident. So, so I, you know, had to hire a guide outfitter. And um, you know, I didn't have a lot of money in those days, but I wanted the experience. And to me, it was, you know, I'd I'll take the experiences any day over the money because money, you know, has its favorites, and ours will always go back to them. But nobody can take away your experiences. Uh, of your of your lifetime so i spent this money that was a lot for our family in the day and and uh i thought i was in shape until i started climbing around those mountains with a 50-pound back, backpack on my back and only enough food to last you know about three days uh, and it was scheduled to be a 14-day backpack hunt it was you know, been rainy wet cold sleeting every worst weather condition you can imagine and yeah, you know, I, I, on about day seven, we found a ram that was legal, but it was young. And the uh, guide, Rod Collins, was the name. One of the greatest outdoorsmen I've ever had the honor of spending time in the wildlands with. He said, "Look, you can shoot that; it's legal, and your hunt's over. But you're going to have to look at that for the rest of your life, knowing that you compromised. You took the easy route, and you didn't, you know, you didn't risk anything. Either. you." killed the animal, which gets rid of that pressure. That's not what hunting's all about. And So I had, at that point, had to dig down deep and, and look at my motivation for hunting. Um, and, and you know, the, the challenge that I, I wanted for myself, required of myself to prove to myself what I was capable of. And uh, so I, I didn't take that shot. And uh, we kept hunting. And, and, and I think at that moment, I realized as much as I wanted to quit, as hurt as I was, Tired, uh, hungry, uh, you know, exhausted. I, I was capable of more, you know, and, and much more. I realized, you know, I think about day ten or eleven, we finally bumped into an ancient old ram that to this day I look at with with pride, and uh, the memories are, you know, it's, you know, I think I I did honor to myself in, on that hunt. So, so that is one of my favorite hunts just because i think it's the point you know that point of epiphany where you realize what you're capable of uh, going into something where you, you've never actually been been uh, pushed to your limits on that hunt i was
0: yeah that's awesome that's a great story do you uh do you keep many trophies from your hunts or i mean i know you you definitely use the food you talked about that do you keep trophies on occasion or often or what do you do with that
1: uh, you know, I, I, it depends how you define trophies. Uh, you know, a trophy by definition is a, a memory of an event or a place uh, or a thing that that reminds you of a, an event or a place, an accomplishment. Uh, so, you know, standing on the podium, getting your picture taken after winning a, a swimming race is, you know, that's a trophy. So, yeah, I take trophies I, every single time. Memories. And, and that's that's what I bring back uh, from every hunt. You know, if the animal has antlers or horns, you know, the first thing you take out is the meat by law in many places. And every ounce of meat has to come out in most constituencies around this world these days. Uh, you know, the, the world is protein starved, so there's no meat wasted on any animal. Um, so at that point, you know, what's what's the pieces that aren't, you know, you're not able to use well the antlers, but you know the horns of an animal. But historically, since the beginning of time, you know they've shown, you know, um, that that uh, hunters, hunter gatherers, have, have dragged back the antlers and horns. They haven't been able to use them, but they still drag them back. You know, why is that? Again, it's because it's a memory of an event, uh, an accomplishment. Uh, so. You know, th- those are things that I think it's disrespectful to just let them rot out in the wildlands. Uh, you know, and, and and I don't know, rot. You start getting into a question. Maybe it's better for the environment. Well, you know, you're you're leaving the uh, you know the antlers of a moose out there for a, a mouse to chew on, which provides valuable. Um, what do you? What are you, my brain is dead here? Um, from calcium for. for or, you know, for their survival. So, so that's a good thing. And just you know, you get into again the philosophical question. Well, what about does does every piece of a animal have to pass through a human gut uh, to make it to justify the hunting of that animal? Um, you know, is is that necessary, or maybe we, you know more of the animal should be left out there, shared with the other denizens of the, the wildlands. So, you know, again, the, 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 this whole trophy business. Uh, and you know the negativity associated with it on trophy hunting. You know the reality is that no, there's not one person that I've ever met that is that hunts. There's a you know this classic negative uh, definition of a of a trophy hunter. Selective, yeah. They you know you heard my story. I didn't want to shoot a younger ram that was perfectly legal, but that ram was in prime breeding age. The ram I took would never lived the winter out and was way past breeding age so you know is that trophy hunting you know, i don't know did i bring his the horns back yeah i did and there they're there in the museum yeah and a full body mount so that everybody from here going forward as long as that organic material will last gets to you know be close to a, a magnificent mature doll sheep so so yes you know the, the short answer is yes um it's just I think you have to be very careful. It's it's a nuanced term and a nuanced question. Um I think that for someone that's not aware of the of the all the facts, you know, they, they simplify it into a you know, trophy hunters are bad. Well, they don't exist anymore. You know, that's yeah. long gone. That's a that's a thing of, of the olden days. It doesn't happen nowadays.
0: Yeah. I think there's there's uh especially when you talk about the fact that every species needs to be managed. And I think a lot of people don't realize or understand that there's not people going out there just, I mean, there, I mean, there may be some, you know, poachers and things like that in parts of the world, but I think responsible hunters out there are their goal is to manage and to, to control the population in a way that's good for the whole ecosystem. So I think that's a, that's a really awesome concept to think about.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and just to to be part of the ecosystem, not not a voyeur looking in on it, but to actually be an active participant. You know, there's many people that are so far removed that they think that, well, as I said earlier, we're not part of nature, we're above nature anymore. But you know, that's not the reality around the world. That that's ivory tower reality in the big cities. But uh, there's many many parts of this world that are are still you know the, us and nature are, are very closely entwined and, and it's just the big cities we've paved over everything destroyed the habitat of the wildlife that live there and the people there just have television versions of what wildlife's all about and and uh so, so you know it's fair enough it's um, you know that they if and they don't have time to educate themselves about what the reality is but yeah, yeah, we 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 are responsible for the wildlife around this world, and we better take that responsibility, you know, seriously, like 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 real hunters do. And poachers are not hunters, by the way. They're just they're they're an aberration. It's like yeah, say someone's a good citizen because they you know took money out of their bank account, but you know if you use a gun when you do it, you know that's that's poaching or stealing. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not it's not it's not they're they're lawbreakers and they should be put in jail.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I um, I think a lot about um, just the way that as a culture we have separated ourselves from the entire process of where our food comes from. You know, I um, when my kids were younger, we raised meat, chickens, and rabbits, and they were a part of seeing, hey, this food that we're eating, we raised it, we grew it, we took care of it, we processed it ourselves because... You know, when you go and you get it at the grocery store, everything's so separate. You, even vegetables, you know. I mean, you you go and you buy something, you have no nothing invested in that. And I think I think as a culture, we're kind of missing something important when we get so separated from where our food comes from. So I love the idea of hunting and uh, feeding your family with what you can find in nature.
1: Yeah, that's that's. Uh, I, I don't think there's a Truer way to live um, than the field-to-table lifestyle, and 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 like I say, we, we have our garden. I was just out there yesterday, brought in all the, the black currants and was picking peas and, and fresh beans. I mean, I know how much work goes into making that garden. You know, that garden, it's not a factory garden. It's, people would take responsibility for their own needs in, in terms of food, um, and and that goes for vegans. Great, make a garden. You know, you don't have to kill something to survive. Grow your soybeans and, and uh, see how much work it is. But don't don't think that you're above someone who goes out and also eats meat and you know catches a, you know up in the Arctic a whale for the Inuit to beluga the whale. I mean, you can't judge some people like that if you don't live that lifestyle. So 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 it's really really important. Uh, I agree with you 100 percent that we know and understand. What it's, you know, the, the food that we consume, what, what allows us to survive is, you know, we just wash our hands of the, of the factory farms, which has to be because there's, you know, almost 8 billion of us. And, you know, I'm not disparaging those either, but people should be made to go see what's involved. They should be they should be you know, required to go work on a factory farm, you know, weeding garden out there somewhere, you know, so that, you know, a couple of days a week, I mean, can imagine a wonderful this world would be if people went out there and got away from their cell phones and televisions and computer screens and, and put some effort into providing for themselves. Yeah, you know, I don't know that it'll ever happen. And, and uh, you know, it's probably not politically correct to say that, but I, I do think that this world would be a lot better place if people understood where food comes from and what's involved with getting that food to their table.
0: Yeah. I agree 100%. Jim, tell me a little bit about the book that you're writing. Uh, well, I, you know, you said it's written and being edited. What what is uh, what's your story about?
1: Yeah, well, it's it's roughly based on you know the the 64 years of of my life. I, I, at 10 years of age, I knew I wanted to create a museum, our hand of man museum, up on Vancouver Island, uh, and I knew what would be in it. I knew the places I wanted to go and. What would be required of you know I'd learned over time to to accomplish that goal but I also wanted to be a novelist at that time you know the the museum I started collecting seashells and, and fishing lures pretty rocks insects um, you know I could afford that like I say we were living in a trailer park way back when but uh, when I started my novel at 10 and I literally did start it I kept uh, my little manuscript behind some bricks you know that were just undercover at our house and I realized pretty quickly that uh, there's actually skill involved with with writing and, and I didn't have a story to tell. So, so I lived life and, and now I've got a story to tell. So I, so I wrote a fictional version of, you know, it's, it's, it's a large part uh, fact. It will be up to everybody to decide what part is fiction, what part is fact. Uh, and it's a thriller. Kind of um, if you took uh, Da Vinci Code and mixed in a little... A girl with a dragon tattoo with a little Hunger Games with a little Smeela's Sense of Snow. Uh, you, you'll get sort of a sense of what the, the book is about. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a serious <laughs> novel, uh, a thriller, a commercial fiction that will be out next year. Simon and Schuster are, are publishing it, and Emily Bessler is, is my editor. She's the rock star over there in New York City for these these type of books.
0: That's awesome. I uh, I can't wait to read it. So I'll uh, I'll be watching for that to come out. That'll be awesome. Jim, um, I like to ask all of my guests a few questions. And, you know, I, I, I like to hear the different responses that we get. And we do get a, a diversity of responses to these. And I think that's been kind of fun. And the first mm-hmm. one is, what does it take to be a man?
1: <laughs> well, the answer to that's, pretty simple. If you have to ask that question, then you, you're not, <laughs> So mm. you, you don't, you know, you are what you are and you're not, uh, you know, like uh, someone like myself. And I, I mean, I consider myself to be male. Uh, uh you know, that that's never been a, a, a question that I would ever ask myself. And I, I you know, even as I'm sitting here talking about, it, I'm thinking about you know, my guides are very capable, self-sufficient, uh, self-reliant. You know, it's just not a question that they would ask themselves. But I would consider every one of them a man. So, so you know, I, you know, what does it take? Uh, self-confidence, self-reliance. You know, uh, um, a belief in yourself. I mean, it's uh, that, that's. Uh, I, I don't think there's any any difference. Or, what does it take to be a a woman? You know, and when every, if everybody is standing there shouting at you and saying, you know, it's horrible to be what you are, but, but you know what you are and it's, who cares? So, so, like I say, that, that comes, there's no self doubt. There's no, um, I don't care what, what, uh, other people think. And I'm, I'm thrilled for everybody else in, um, in, in how they look at their lives, but but as I said, the 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 men that I know don't. That's not a question they would ever ask themselves. So it, it kind of like you say, it, if you have to ask yourself that question, you're you're um, you're you're not. Uh, there's no self doubt involved. You just are what you are, and, and uh, yeah, there, there's no. It, it, to me, it's an odd question because its it, its uh, i do not saying it's a bad question. It's just an odd one because it, uh, uh, a man doesn't ask that question of themselves. They don't need to.
0: Yeah, no, I I understand that completely. I think that um, our identity is something that a lot of people out there do struggle with today, and I think that there's there's something to be said about somebody who knows who he is and can stand firm in that. So I, f- I fully understand that response. I get you. So um, was there a moment in your life between boyhood and manhood when you knew that difference, when you could sense that something had changed?
1: No, I don't I don't think so. I mean, I, I had a very clear vision at the age of 10 what I was going to, you know, what I intended to do with my life. And I just made sure I worked towards that. So, you know, there's, you know, I never had any of this, um, what do, they, what do they call it uh not, not menopause for 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 men you <laughs> know when you turn to you know i i've never i've done exactly what i wanted to with this one life so there's not one single regret and and there's not you know it's a pretty natural thing you know we we kind of you know we're born and you know we're young we're adolescents and we you know consider to be adults and and then we uh old age and, and pass away it, it, the process is not a complicated process and there's no reason you know to the the for me anyway the, the self analysis um <laughs> you know what a waste of time <laughs> you know so you know i you no, know, it, it, it's never never been a uh, uh you know a, a point in my life where i you know, determined. Wow, I'm I'm a man now. You know, because then you're analyzing something that's just a natural process, and, and it happens. Now there is many societies around the world, and I've been involved with them where they, you know, there's coming of age ceremonies that, uh, you know, and tests where where the young men have to pass. And thank goodness we didn't have to do that. You know, like, hey, uh, but again, for in their societies, tougher world. They, you know, you had to be a tougher person. You want to. Hang by your pectoral muscles on hooks for a day, uh, you know, to to prove that you're a man. I, you know, or kill a lion with a spear. I mean, thank goodness we didn't have to do that in our worlds. So, uh, but but you know, I it, culturally, you know, we didn't we didn't have to. So so, you know, like I say, there, it's not like there's an epiphany or a, a moment when you go, "Wow, I'm a man." For me, and I'm not speaking for everybody. Maybe you know, everybody's experiences are different and, and I think that's the beauty of, of, uh, of, of, of it is is tolerance of other people's point of views I don't get it but that doesn't mean it's wrong I, I think if someone wants to spend you know you know going to drumming sessions and screaming primal holding hands in a circle around a fire you know have at it I, I think that's great if that makes them feel I don't get it but uh, you know I, I'm not talking about Tribes around the world. I'm talking about, you know, people from urban centers that maybe are a little detached from, or that might ask themselves these same questions. Yeah, I, I, the identity. There's no. I, I don't see an identity crisis. Not not at all for people that are living pretty natural lives. I think if you're an unnatural life, you can lose your way. And and uh, again, I, if if that all helps, then have at it. And uh, you know, if they want to analyze themselves and and <laughs> figure out, you know, on this day I turned to be a man, then great. You know, I'm, I'm, you know I, I mean, but, but you know, by the same token we all have to be able to, to laugh at ourselves and, and have the confidence and, and take ourselves so seriously that we that we can't, you know, kind of giggle at each other's foibles and and, uh, you know, make the, the world a lighter place.
0: I have a tendency to laugh at all the wrong times and somebody always gets mad about it but... <laughs> <laughs> um you, you, when you sure describe problem. when you describe the uh the perspective there uh it reminds me a lot of the marcus aurelius quote that says stop arguing about what a good man is and just be one <laughs> so i think i think that there makes a lot of sense i think that makes a lot of sense and and you mentioned uh, you mentioned when you were 10 that you knew what the life that you wanted to live which kind of brings me to my next question jim which is uh If you were to run into the 10 year old version of yourself and have the opportunity to speak into his life and talk to him, what do you want him to know?
1: Uh, You know, I I wouldn't tell him a darn thing. Uh, I I would, you know, I I think it would be stealing from that child at at 10 because you, you take away, if you give too much, you take away the joy of accomplishment Uh, And you also take away the the threat of failure. You you know, you you give them the secrets to life at that age or advice, uh, you know, without them discovering and learning on their own and seeking advice from people that they respect and and learning who to respect to get that advice from. You know, every single thing you take away from that child takes away from what they will look back on their life as being, you know, did I do anything or was I just given a bunch of money and never really had to do anything, never had a risk. I took the easy way out the whole way. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell that little boy anything. I, I, I just say have at it and, and, uh, enjoy this, this ride, this one life we, we get to live. Uh, and you know, because I know myself at the age of 10, I was already, you know, predestined to, uh, to do what I've, you know, done in my life to create this hand-to-man museum, to, you know, write this novel and to, you know, produce the television show, share with the world the, this amazing planet we live in, to do as much as I possibly could for conservation, to help the armed forces, you know, to, to enjoy the art created by, by human beings. Um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't you know, I, I knew I was going to do that at that age, so I, I wouldn't give that little boy any advice whatsoever. I'd just say, nice to meet you, and uh, I'll talk to you in, in 54 years. <laughs> we, we got a lot, lot, lot to talk about by then.
0: <laughs> I love it. I think it's a great perspective, Jim. So uh, before I get to my last question, and this is something we kind of briefly touched on, but maybe you could tell me a little bit more about your Hand of Man Museum. What's What's that all about, man?
1: Yeah, it's it, As I said, when, from the age of 10, I had a very clear vision of what I wanted to do. And it was a lot of uh, maybe pie in the sky dreaming at that time. I had National Geographic magazines that, that I did have access to. Uh, so I figured out what I wanted to see with this one life, what I wanted to accomplish, what I wanted to gather together and, and why I do it all, you know, it seemed to be important to to share anything. I don't believe you own anything. You're just a steward of it while you're alive. So, you know, I, I endeavored from that point on. So I'm 64, so more than half a century, I, I followed that that plan um, and gathered together. You know, many of the, the um, animals that I've gone after around the world, you can't buy them, and nor should you be able to buy them. You know, I, I don't think, you know... I, well, that's a different story, but, but you know, the, the commercial trade in wildlife species, I, I think has never done a, a, a good deed to those species. And, and if people want wild animals or wild fish, even they should have to go catch it. You know, again, we get back to that gardening question. So, so I traveled around the world, gathered the, um, you know, the art, Uh, of wherever I was as much, you know, as long as it was legal and you could get export and import permits for it, which was half of my gray hair comes from that. The other half comes from our daughter, Eva. So I I spent uh, (laughs) a lifetime, you know, gathering these objects together. um, And then we picked up a building that's uh, about 17,000 square feet. It was actually our, our Children's private school, or not private, public school that they went to when they were young. Uh, the government sold it off and wanted it torn down, but I bought them on it, and, and we uh, got commercial zoning for it, and now it's, it's, we'll have 25,000 visitors this year through our museum. And I, because of you know, the humble beginnings that I started from, I, I've kept it donation only. I, I, don't, I could never have afforded to go into a museum if there's a cover charge but I would have lived there if it was you know, by donation That would have been the curator's nightmare. And, and so it's always going to be, you know, I'm in control. We, we've actually started the process. We've, uh, to create a foundation and donate the land, the building, the contents and give it a bunch of money. So it'll, you know, our great, great grandchildren will be able to walk in there and everybody else's great, great grandchildren will be able to walk in there and, and enjoy these things from around the world. And, and uh, you know, unlike a regular museum that's fairly academic, this this one is, you know, it's a story. And and if anyone goes online, just Google it, uh, you know, and, and look at the reviews. Uh, you know, you're going to get one in a thousand people that hates it, and they're very vocal, and, and I get it. You know, that's fair enough. Like I say, that's uh, part of being tolerant is accepting. Oh, you know, it's not for everybody, but uh, it's literally one in a thousand. So, you know, it, it, it's... Um, it's something that we can give back to the community. I think it was Karl Marx that said, you know, to those according to their need, from those according to their ability. And I'm sure there's people out there right now crinkling up their noses that I've quoted Karl Marx, but, uh, you know, it's not a bad thing to give back to the community, and and no one owns anything. You're just a steward of it while you're alive. So this is our gift back to to our our local community, and, and obviously you know, the 25,000 that's this year, it's been open three years and that number is going to rise. And, and uh, if we can help people that way, then, uh, then that's what we do. So that, that's what the museum is about. It's 50 years of driving in one direction, no side cuts, no shortcuts and never stopping. And you, you eventually end up somewhere. And that's our hand to man museum.
0: That's awesome. My last question for you, Jim is what is your best advice for the men that are listening today?
1: Well, I mean, it's the same advice I'd give anybody at, at any age. Is you, you get one life. You, you know, you don't get do-overs on this one life we're given. So why choose to spend the time in this one life doing something that you don't love to do? I mean, it makes no sense to me. And, and uh, if, if you live that way, you'll never end up with regrets you know, that I could be standing here right now talking to, you and, uh, a seagull could fly, you know, die, bomb me and kill me. And, and it would be, you know, there's not one regret, you know, because, because when you choose to live the life that, that, uh, you want to live and don't let other people choose for you and, and, determine for you, you know, if it's a good way to live, a bad way to live, you just do what, what you love doing, obviously within the letter of the law. And, and uh, And morality and ethics, those are all constraints that people put on themselves. And live this life. It's one life. You don't get a chance to do it again, and you don't want to be reaching old age and and have regrets. I I think that's the saddest thing when when I see that. So live. Just grab life. Live it. 100 miles an hour. It's one crack at it. Do it right.
0: That's excellent advice, my friend. I really appreciate you taking the time to share it with me. If our listeners want to connect with you, what's the best way they can do that?
1: Uh, I mean, uh, in, uh, let's see, it would be jimshockey.com. We've got a website, Hand to Man Museum. Uh, if they Google that, they're, they're going to be able to reach me. Uh, I think we're on uh, all the uh, – I we'll probably have over, I think, 1.2 million Facebook and, and social media Fans, uh, Instagram, Twitter—we're on all those. I'm constantly, you know, posting on those uh, platforms. So that—that's also a good way to follow what we're doing. And uh, and, and you know, it's not you know for—it's not about hunting. It's about life. Yeah. Well, That's—I say the most important thing we're we're granted. So that's what that's what my posts are about. And the best way to sort of follow the you know our fields of table lifestyle philosophy.
0: Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to link that in the show notes as well so people can can uh, check it out and get in touch with you and, and see the work you're doing. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today, man. Thank you.
1: Yeah, it's my pleasure. It was really fun.
0: Awesome. Thanks. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to interview with us here today on the Manlyhood Mancast. I appreciate everything you shared with us. I appreciate your perspective. Guys, if you are appreciating what you're hearing from Jim, please check out the links in the show notes. Let's go show him some love, some support. Let's interact with him and see what else we can learn from the amazing work that he's doing. Guys, I love you guys. I care about you. And I'll see you next time.